Hi there. We're excited that you've joined us and that you're able to listen to this resource from Grace Presbyterian Church, Christchurch. We hope that it will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord. Please let us know how this sermon encourages you in your faith. We'd love to connect with you and worship with you on Sundays at 10 a.m. Please find more information about us online or in the link in our bio. If you have a Bible with you, please turn, to me, turn with me to Romans 12. We're going to be continuing our study of Romans chapter 12 today. Uh, while we're turning there, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Morrison. I am one of the elders here at Grace Presbyterian Church. And uh, it's my pleasure to be able to open God's Word with you today. So Romans chapter 12, um, I'm going to start by reading verses 1 and 2 again. These are verses that uh, uh, Josh preached on a couple of weeks ago um, and set some of the context for the passage that we're going to be studying today. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in the passage we're going to be looking at today, starting in verse 9, Paul is unpacking a little bit more what it looks like to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice uh, and what the renewal of our minds looks like to some degree. He's going to be fleshing that out. So let's read then from verse 9 down to the end of chapter 12. In verse 9 it says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. 
So as we take some time to study this passage, let's just pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together as your people in this place this morning. We thank you that we can worship you together, that we can sing songs of praise, and that we can open your word together. We ask that your Holy Spirit guide us now as we study this passage. We ask that you be at work in our hearts. We ask that you would indeed be transforming our minds, renewing our minds. Help us to see more of you and your character, of your love for us, and how that can overflow in our lives as we seek to love those around us. We ask that you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at university, um, as some of you will know, I studied law, but I also did a Bachelor of Arts, uh, which focused on majored in philosophy and political studies. One of the classes that I took uh, as part of my philosophy major was an applied ethics class. Uh, and I was quite excited going into the class uh, because we were going to be um, talking um, through some really interesting, difficult ethical questions. We were looking at issues like euthanasia, uh, abortion, animal rights, environmentalism, all sorts of big issues that invite d debate and discussion in our culture. But as it turned out, uh, the class was uh, one that I found frustrating and disappointing because although we did discuss all of those topics and we came at them from various different perspectives, um, we asked questions like, well, if you were taking an Aristotelian approach to ethics, how might you, how might you approach this question? Or if you were taking an, a utilitarian approach or an existential approach, how might you answer this question? The problem was there were lots of people with uh, feelings and expressions and thoughts, but no actual concrete guidance to help us to resolve any of the difficult questions that we were facing. Uh, it was a deeply frustrating experience. Well, what we have in our passage today is quite the opposite. Two weeks ago, um, Josh preached and told us how Paul was inviting us to present both our bodies and our minds to God, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice and to let our minds be renewed so that we're not conformed to the thinking of this world in the way that we live our lives. And in our passage today, Paul is putting flesh on those ideas in ways that are very concrete, simple, and direct, and give us real guidance that we can put into action straight away in our everyday lives. What does it look like to dedicate our lives to God? In a series of short, efficient statements, Paul outlines a practical and beautiful picture of living as children of God. So as we study this passage today, what we're going to do first is look at what Paul describes Firstly, with a focus on our relationships with one another within the church, and then looking at our wider relationships with others around us in our wider community. Then we're going to briefly reflect on how far we fall short of this calling in our everyday lives. 
And then we're going to come back to this idea that Paul started us off with in verse 1 when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So we're going to look at the mercies of God. How does seeing the mercies of God in our lives empower us to pursue this life that we're being called to in the passage today? So let's start just by working simply through the passage and understanding some of what Paul is calling us to here. And it is quite a simple passage. He uses very short phrases, just simple verbs, very simple expressions of what to do with these, these various different concepts. So we see, for example, he starts in verse 9, let love be genuine. Genuine love is what, what we're being called to. This is very simple. It's straightforward. In a sense, it's easy to understand. What we're going to see in this passage is that although we live in a your life for mine kind of a world, we are called to live a my life for yours kind of a life. Self-sacrificing, genuine love for those around us, genuinely putting their needs in front of our own. Let love be genuine. Then he goes on, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In other words, let's have an understanding of what's evil and what's good Let's push away from what's evil and let's move towards and hold fast to what is good. When it says hold fast there, this is the same sort of concept that gets used in Greek in the New Testament passages that talk about marriage, quoting from Genesis uh, chapter 1 where it talks about a husband leaving his father and mother and, being, um, and cleaving to his wife. It's the same sort of language here. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. He goes on, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. When he says outdo one another in showing honor, what's he talking about there? He's talking about um, an idea of showing respect for another person in every situation. To give a sort of a, a, a picture of this, an illustration of this, um, if you're, if you're toasting someone, if you're um, toasting someone maybe during a celebration, um, in some cultures, one of the ways that you show respect to another person when you toast them is, if you, if you, is that you, you hold your glass lower than their glass as you toast together. Okay, so if we take that picture, the sort of the idea here there is maybe you're toasting with somebody else and you're wanting to express your respect and your honor for them and so you're holding your glass lower than theirs, but they're at the same time trying, trying to honor you. And so they're trying to hold their glass lower than yours. And it's like this, this, um, this battle to show respect, outdo one another in showing honor. It's like who can show the most honor to the other person. So the call here is in every aspect of our life, in each of the different relationships, how can we outdo one another in showing honor? How can we always honor the other person with the way that we speak, with the way that we think about the things that they are saying to us. Then he goes on with a bit of a, a broader focus. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. In other words, this is really coming back to this idea of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is something that we dedicate ourselves wholeheartedly to. 
And then if we do live in that manner, that might mean that we experience suffering and hardship um, in our own lives. We might experience difficulty as we put others ahead of ourselves. And so Paul calls us then to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We rejoice in the hope of our certain future with Jesus Christ, and we live constantly in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see how, how practical and how tangible Paul's advice for us is in this passage. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Get, get yourself involved in supporting evangelistic work and preaching work um, that the church is seeking to pursue. But also when you see your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you see them in need, contribute to those needs. Help, share your financial resources uh, with your Christian brothers and sisters. And with that, seek to show hospitality. Open up your home to strangers. Welcome them in. Share what you have been blessed with, with those that God brings into your path. It's really simple, clear, practical advice. It's the sort of thing that we can tangibly put into effect in our lives every day. He goes on then in verse 14, and the tone changes a little bit, because he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It seems like so, so far in this passage, the focus has been on mostly on our relationship with our Christian brothers and sisters. And so we've had the words one another repeated a few times. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And we get that again in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. So it seems like that's still the context here, but there's a bit of a shift in focus here. What happens when others wrong you? What happens when others persecute you? And the call here is bless Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What does it mean when it calls us to bless those who persecute you? If you think about that word bless, it can mean a few different things in different contexts. Um, for example, sometimes we're commanded to bless God and there the idea is that we worship God, that we give him the honor and the recognition um, that he deserves. Sometimes you might bless someone in the way that was sort of contemplated in the verse that came just before this, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's a way you can tangibly bless someone by helping to meet their needs. But I think what's the focus here when it says bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, is when someone wrongs you, even when someone persecutes you, call down God's blessing on them. Call, ask God to bless that person. Don't curse them. Ask God to bless them. That's the attitude that we're being called to and in terms of our love for those around us. And then we see, again, more of this focus on being with those around us and, and putting their needs and their concerns ahead of our own. Rejoice with those who rejoice. When somebody else has reason to celebrate, join with them. Weep with those who weep. When somebody has reason to weep, weep with them. 
there's no place for um, schadenfreude or in, enjoying the misfortunes of other in terms of our Christian attitude. We are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are called, I mean, you could go back to the, to the, the first and second great commandment and that idea of love, one another, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the idea here with these words. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. When I read through these verses and these sorts of ideas, they just are deeply practical and deeply satisfying in terms of plugging together with what we see about love, God's love for us and the call for us to love those around us. So I wanted to tease this out just for a minute by thinking specifically about the marriage relationship and then wider about love relationships. So in our society today, we have something of a contractual view of marriage. Tim Keller describes this as the view that marriage is a contract between two parties for mutual individual growth and satisfaction and without any particular wider obligation to God, church, or society. So we tend to expect a marriage in which we can receive satisfaction from somebody who will simply let us be ourselves. So this view of marriage relies on the kind of self-interested economic theory that is common in modern contract law. I'm sure you'll be happy to hear that. Contract theory today typically assumes that people make contracts on the strength of the profit they can expect to make from the transaction. If circumstances change and one of the parties gains the opportunity to make a greater profit by dealing with someone else, economic theory suggests that they should freely cancel the contract that they made with the first person, compensate that first person for their loss, and move on to the new and better deal. Okay, so maybe that works in a commercial context in some cases, but when brought into the marriage context, this can mean that our behavior is not in fact based on love, it is based on earned merit. We love our spouses only to the extent they earn our love. However, if we only love when it suits our self-interest, we fail to love at all. So in recent years, there has been an increasing trend to change the traditional wedding vows. It used to be that men, for example, invariably gave vows to their, to their new wife to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. You've probably heard vows along those lines before. Um, more recently, though, there has been a bit of a trend for couples to begin to revise these vows by altering some of these more challenging commitments. So it's not uncommon now for a couple to vow to remain married for as long as our love shall last. In fact, I was reading an article on this trend in which one uh, wedding expert expressed the view that this change in vows was a good thing. She was quoted as saying that Killing the death vow doesn't mean that people don't take their marriage promises seriously. Quite the contrary. People understand that anything can happen in life and you don't make a promise you can't keep. 
when people get divorced, they mourn the fact that they said, till death do us part. You didn't keep your word in church if you had a church wedding. Some people are in therapy because they promised death till death do us part. It's the sticking point in the healing of a broken marriage. The wording can give you a stigma of personal failure. For those who have expressed interest in eliminating till death do us part, Naila has suggested going with, for as long as our marriage shall serve the greatest good, you'll promise to be loyal as long as love shall last. You don't want to promise when you treat me like crap, she said. Well, I think she's right that promising to love no matter what and until death do us part is the kind of promise that we find very difficult to keep. Uh, And we do fail at loving in this way to some degree all the time. I also want to acknowledge that it's true that in some cases your spouse might leave you or treat you so badly that they have in truth forsaken their own marriage vows to you. However, as a general statement, giving such a weakened marriage vow implies that the object of my love will need to continue to earn my love, otherwise my love may end. And in the context of marriage, and indeed our wider relationships, that sort of thinking should make us worried. Love should not be conditional in that sense. Love should be more self-sacrificing than that. Our society today has a lot of time for love as a concept, but not for this love. Our society has a lot of time for the love we feel when someone or something wins our affection. They might be handsome or cute or talented or strong or friendly or witty or suave. They enter our lives and they sweep us off our feet. They win our love almost against our will. The natural response is love because the object of that love is lovely. But when you love somebody only because they make your life better, you're not loving the person You're loving what they do for you. St. Augustine famously wrote, The city of God is a place where the inhabitants love people and walk on gold. The city of man is a place where the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. Christian love is a my life for yours kind of love. This is what Paul calls us to. And so that's what we see in these verses. That's why he can say these things like, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, even when others wrong you and cause you hardship. Self-sacrificing love gives itself for the sake of others, even when they don't deserve it. This is what Paul calls us to. Well, if the earlier part of this passage was primarily focused on our Christian brothers and sisters, the the focus is now shifting a bit more towards humanity at large, and in particular, our enemies. Well, the focus may have shifted, but the attitude remains the same. So we see in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The passage is acknowledging the reality that we will be wronged. 
And the natural sinful inclination of a fallen world like ours is to seek revenge, to get our own back when others wrong us. But the call of this passage is repay no one evil for evil. And so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's an idea here that's unstated, but that is reflected throughout the book of Romans. God's justice is perfect. God will not leave wrong unpunished. As Christians, we look at that and we know if somebody else sins against us, either they will experience the punishment for that one day themselves from God, or it has already been punished and Christ took the punishment when he shed his blood on the cross in our place and took the punishment for our sins. God's justice is perfect. He will not leave sin unpunished. And therefore we can say that we will not avenge sin ourselves. We will leave it to God. Now I should say again just quickly here, and just as a clarification, we're going to go on next week, I think, to talk about the civil authorities. There is a place for civil justice, and this passage is not focused on that. This passage is focused on relationships between individuals and how we should live as Christians and how we should view others when they wrong us personally. So verse 20 says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then it has a turn of phrase that everyone scratches their head about, and there's lots of debate about, so we're going to have to dive into it. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What, is that, what does it mean when it says, for by doing so, you will heap burning holes on, coals on his head? Because it kind of sounds like, actually, you'll get your, your vengeance after all. Is that what it's saying here in verse 20? Well, I don't think it is. And as I've read through various different commentaries on this, the best understanding, the one that makes sense, especially in view of the wider passage where Paul has clearly said to us, um, that we shouldn't seek vengeance for ourselves. So that can't be the focus in this verse 20. What probably does make sense as an ex explanation is that if your enemy wrongs you and they see you continuing to love them in spite of that wrong, that will heap burning coals on their head in the sense of either it should cause them a sense of shame at their own behavior and hopefully it will lead them to repent and so be saved themselves. And thus we have in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again, just pausing at this moment to reflect briefly. I think the life that Paul calls us to in these verses is clear, it's straightforward, it's brilliant, but it's devastating. Because if we're honest, if we look at our own lives, we know that we fail to live with this kind of self-giving love for others every day. Be honest. How many of the items in this list can you say that you consistently express in your relationships with those around you? 
our experience very often is realistically more like what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. In verse 15 of Romans chapter 7, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And I can say that that's true of me when I read these, when I read these verses. I delight in what I see in these verses. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? from this body of death. Again, I think the best understanding of that Romans 7 passage is that that's talking about the experience of genuine believers struggling with ongoing sin in their lives. And very, very often that's our experience when we look at a passage like Romans 12 and the, the, the calling that we've been called to in these verses. We look at it and we know that we fall hopelessly short of what we've been called to here. And that's why... Paul's call in these verses started with the words, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The only thing that will fuel us to live this kind of life is to see the mercies of God that have been poured out for us in our lives. And so I want to read through the train of thought in some of the earlier passages from the book of Romans. We're not, certainly not going to pick up on every theme in the book of Romans. And there are, there are a number of important themes of the, the book that we're going to skip over. But what I just want to look at in looking at some verses is, what are these mercies of God that Paul's talking to, talking to us about? And how can they enable us to pour ourselves out in this kind of self-sacrificing life? So if you turn back in the book, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes on to talk about our condition without God's intervention. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And then in chapter 3, again, just reflecting, meditating, continuing to meditate on our sinfulness. Chapter 3, verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the state of sin and misery that Nathan referenced earlier and that we all were in without the intervention of God. Do you know that this was your plight? Do you know how God rescued you? In verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Verse, chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ died for his enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for, the, for sinners. Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 31 of chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sleep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, he wants us to think back to the amazing mercies that we have received through Christ, that we did not deceive, deserve while we were his enemies. And on the basis of those mercies, to offer our bodies and our minds as a living sacrifice, transformed, renewed. And so we are called to pour out our lives in a my life for yours love for our Christian brothers and sisters and for the world at large. We are called to live at peace with all so far as it depends on us. We are called to trust in God's justice and to let our lives be an overflow of his mercy. I want to finish just by reading again those first two verses of chapter 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your amazing mercy to us, even as we read through those verses again. When we think about the depth of our sin and misery, the depth of our rebellion against you, And the fact that you came, that Jesus, you took on flesh, you humbled yourself, you poured out your life for your enemies, you loved us when we hated you, you rescued us. Lord, would you capture us with a deeper sense of how amazing your love for us is? And would that love then overflow in our lives so that we might be able to extend the same self-sacrificing love to others, to give ourselves to others, to pour ourselves out, to share what you've blessed us with for the sake of others, to live at peace with others, to give up a need for vengeance, a need to prove when I'm right and somebody else is wrong, but to pour out love, to seek blessing for those around us, in the same way that you have blessed us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.